Welcome to In the Author Studio. And today we'll have with us Amy Edmondson, and we'll be talking about the Fearless Organization. Sean Moffat and Andrea Cates, we are the Future Proofing Next team, and these are conversations that are intended to get people who are practitioners in the field of corporate growth and scale up growth to have Monday morning news we can use. <laughs> So Future Proofing Next is innovation we can take to the bank. And what we mean by that is that it's practical. It's something that's very much application oriented. And what we say is that we bring the future forward and we help you get to your next. And hopefully we're all ready for a bolder, faster and simpler future. So I'd like to welcome Amy Edmondson. And I invited you to be part of In the Author Studio because Basically, every place we go, people talk about the book. Uh, they are talking about fearless organization and the term psychological safety unprompted is one of the terms that comes out of the mouths of teams in virtually every industry and C-suite leaders all over. And so wondering if you uh, are, are surprised by that and maybe a bit of your context for who you find talking about this either surprisingly or not so surprisingly i'm stunned by it and 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 that's in part because this is something i was working on and studying quite uh, actively 10 15 years ago and you know you're, i'm an academic i write academic papers i don't really expect anyone to read them i mean you hope that eventually some of the ideas make it to practice the I think the, the major trigger point was when Google did their own internal study, Project Aristotle, studied 180 teams or so very thoughtfully, very effectively, lots of data, lots of measures, and found, not expecting to, but found that psychological safety was the big determinant in, in shaping whether teams really performed well or, or not. So that, of course, got the attention of a New York Times reporter that got the attention of everybody. And then that started a process. I think that started a process where people were sort of saying, what is this? Why does it matter? And very, very soon after the New York Times article came out, I decided I better write that book. Right? I've been studying this for a long time. I haven't really put it out there in, a, in an accessible format other than an HBR article or two. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write the book. Uh, but it's deeply gratifying that it's struck a chord. I'll get back to your word accessible because that's something that's really refreshing about the way that you wrote the book. And it serves a community, a global community of business leaders in our opinion, because it's one thing to understand something theoretically and to look at numbers and really figure out, uh, I like a lot of your graphs and that, you know, the, the depth of research and the lit search that you've done and the, and the academic pursuit that led to this is really impressive. At the same time, you really translated it for people. And I think that the idea of having something like that Google moment, um, you know, where there's a sense that suddenly there's a factor that helps the data fall into place. And, and that sort of, what do they call it? A coup de foudre or something like that, that snap of insight that happens. It's all eureka, eureka yeah, moment. Eureka. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what were they looking for at Google? Because of course, all of us want to learn from Google, but what were they trying? What was the question they were trying to solve? Because I imagine other leaders in the future proofing community are trying to solve the same thing. 
The question was a very simple and age-old question, which is why do some teams perform better than others? I mean, we, let's say you're Google, you think, and I think appropriately, that you do a good job hiring, that you're hiring very, very smart, you know, people with different expertise and, and a deep motivation to doing well. And then you put them into teams and you assume abracadabra, the teams will perform well, but that doesn't always work out that way. Now, I, I think that's an experience that nearly every company has at some time or another where they realize, huh, we have persistent performance differences across teams or units or branches or whatever the, you know, whatever the unit is, um, regional, you know, you'll find, you'll find differences. And Google, the, the study was designed to see if they could figure out what the key differentiators were, what the variables were that explained why some teams performed uh, better um, than others. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to double click on this notion of performed better because um, that definition has undergone a lot of change over the last 20 years that I've witnessed. Um, perform better in the old days used to mean the best Six Sigma team with the fewest default, you know, the defects. And so what does perform better mean in this particular business environment? Well, perform better means achieving measurable goals, right? So, so perform better means whatever it means in the different contexts. If, if it means come up with a new idea and make some progress toward testing whether it works or not, that's good performance. If it means Six Sigma, that's good performance, right? So it depends on what the task is. It, it depends on what the team is doing. Uh, but performance is um, measured against some goal or expectation and arguably is more um, believable when it's measured in some way that, that we can agree is a valid measure. Well, now that we know the punchline of the story, <laughs> which is that psychological safety was significant, let's go back to what you thought it might have been. Like what was candidate numbers two and three if it hadn't well, been psychological safety? What did you assume? Well, let, no, no, let me be clear. I was not part of the Google study. Right? They, they did that on their own and, and um, presumably looked through the academic literature to find worthy candidates for variables. You know, what, what measures should they use in their research? And one of many that they found and thought, what the heck, we'll throw it in, was psychological safety. Um, so that wasn't, you know, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was just a lucky break. <laughs> for me, anyway, because the way it was written up in the New York Times was, you know, that they, you know, they essentially struggled and struggled, and then they found the concept and the variable of psychological safety, and everything fell into place. Right? Yeah. yeah. But what? Uh, I, I mean, I think I was long interested in the question of teams and team performance, but my particular interest early in my in my research career was was on learning behavior. Right. So I was interested in you know, Six Sigma is certainly an example of learning behavior. Um, physician and nurse teams coping with the ever-present reality of, of medical error um, is a context where learning behavior is desperately needed and turns out to show variance as well. Right? Some, some do better at learning than others. So I wanted, my original research was to explain differences in learning behavior. And I stumbled into 
differences in what I initially called interpersonal climate. You know, just the, um, in a very straightforward way, when you're looking at medical errors, it turns out there can be differences in reporting climate. You know, do people speak up or not about bad news? And of course, when they don't, um, you, you, you don't learn because you don't have an opportunity to fix and correct and, and figure out how not to have that happen again next time. And you've put up this wonderful slide with Wells Fargo on it, which of course is a very visible example of an organization where the bad news wasn't traveling up the corporate ladder and leading to a sort of persistence of all sorts of problematic behaviors, non-learning behaviors, and in fact, um, fraudulent behaviors ultimately, because frontline service folks and frontline sales folks found it impossible to say that the performance demands that were being put on them, in fact, were unrealistic and, and, and couldn't be achieved in the markets in which they were operating. So they you know, famously sort of made stuff up and all sorts of other problematic activities. Well, we're, what I like about the honesty of the book and the way that you that you tell uh, even case study type stories is that, you know, as we said earlier, you generalize them so we can all relate and we can all avoid the behaviors that got us to the bad places. And you also give it, it's, it's not formulaic, but it's definitely a synthesis and, and, a, and a way of, of, of um, uh, crystallizing, hmm, reflecting on this, like if that doesn't work, you know, these behaviors don't work. How do we actually avoid it? And you translate it into very useful do's and don'ts in a sense for leaders. Um, mm -hmm. So let's take, and we're not blaming Wells Fargo right now. It just happens to be no. a powerful and consistent no. case study for this. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the things that companies in general do that, you know, Wells Fargo might've been a, a one example, but in general, um, you know, it's not anybody's fault. Some of us were taught top-down management right. and kind of a militaristic approach to punishment. And, you know, there are many things that, that are part of the framework of, of business training that lay the groundwork for something which in this knowledge era um, might not be appropriate anymore. So talk to us about some of the other companies and how leaders can think sure. about and And I love that you pointed out it's, it's not necessarily someone's fault, right? Absent data to give me confidence that someone did, did deliberately um, what they did to create the havoc at say Wells Fargo. And I'll, I can talk about other cases as well. Um, absent data to say that was deliberate. I always assume it's inadvertent. I assume that as you put it so nicely that people have by and large taken for granted theories or strategies for how do you get the best performance out of people? And unfortunately, a lot of those taken for granted strategies are based on fear. But they're based on the idea, whether it's conscious or not, that if people are sufficiently afraid of missing the mark, they'll produce, they'll do what it takes and they'll produce what I've asked them to produce. Um, and you know, maybe that comes from parenting models or various other you know, management experiences that people have had, but, but it's, um, it's unfortunately more widespread than makes sense in a knowledge era. And by knowledge era, I mean an era in which ingenuity and teamwork 
generally matter more to performance outcomes than just sheer effort, right? I mean, fear works okay if the task requires just sheer effort. You know, if sufficient effort, you'll reach that goal. But whenever it requires, you know, creativity or new ideas or, or God forbid, the cooperation of the actual customer, um, you know, sheer effort's not going to be um, enough. So the book is full of stories. You know, unfortunately, it's easier to find stories where people were afraid and couldn't speak up and didn't ask for help um, or share bad news and really bad things happened either from a human safety point of view or from a business performance point of view, those stories are easier to find than the stories where people felt absolutely, you know, engaged and fully able to speak up and bring their, bring their voice forward and good things happened. Um, those, fortunately, the book is full of both kinds of stories, but, you know, in, in spirit of full disclosure, it's certainly easier to find the challenging ones. Well, I'll think of this from a sort of systems perspective, too, because if we think about incentives, things, things don't change overnight. And so you can have asynchronous development where you're very well intentioned, but unfortunately, people are smart and they'll, like at Wells Fargo or wherever, you know, there's an incentive system that, that rewards for a certain thing. So even if a leader intends something, people figure out how to get their quarterly bonus or whatever it might be. Um, there's also this notion of, um, you know, we talk about diversity but there can be a tone that's inadvertent, as you mentioned, where people who speak up, I, I know since you, we were discussing that, you know, I go to a lot of different cultures and there's some cultures where speaking up doesn't, it, you know, it's not necessarily culturally correct. So, um, or introverts, I love that you allow for people with just different natural styles. And if I don't say, Amy, you've been awfully quiet in that meeting. Um, is there something you'd think we need to look at? Yeah. People might not step forward even if they, in their minds have something to contribute right. counter to the norm. Right, I think that's, yeah, we, we miss, most of us as human beings and certainly as managers are prone to the error of assuming silence means you don't have any, anything to add. Um, when, when, when in fact, <laughs> silence does not mean you don't have anything to add. It means you may or may not have something to add and you may have something to add but not feel clear that it's going to be welcome or you worry about the um, what people will think of you and 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 so on well i'll i'll share a quote that i love <clears throat> which is um high standards in a context where there is uncertainty or interdependence combined <laughs> with a lack of psychological safety is a recipe for suboptimal performance now I'm pretty sure you said that, so maybe you don't want to like comment on yourself, but um, I love this quote. I feel kind of like I need a t-shirt with this quote. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what, give, us, give us your take. Sure. On I mean, maybe looking at it, it's a little wordy, but, but I agree with you. I, I, I love the sentiment behind it as well, because basically what it's saying is, you know, again, the, <laughs> this idea of having, you know, we have taken for granted or implicit approaches that we use to be effective. And I think most of us would subscribe to the idea of holding high standards, like of, 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 of setting ambitious goals and then helping people reach them. Um, and that's great. Um, and again, if, for example, imagine an Olympic gymnast um, who has practiced her routine you know, thousands and thousands of times, um, the chances are really good. She will be able to 
achieve that high standard in competition because she's she's nailed it right she's got she's practiced it she's nailed it so she can do it but let's say you're asking people to do something new and creative they've never done before and yes i still think we should be ambitious but there's enormous uncertainty about say how the customer will respond or what might happen or how the technology works and given uncertainty and high standards if people don't feel absolutely able to ask questions to suggest maybe a crazy idea or a weird interpretation of what they're seeing um, you're just not going to get there. I mean, it's just, it's a sort of simple scientific fact, if you will. Well, one of the things, and, and we're a little bit controversial in the land of future-proofing Nexus, we talk, you know, we've been taught predictive analytics, and that was kind of what we were raised on, and now we call it suggestive analytics, which is actually, actually, we don't even pride ourselves on knowing how it will come out. We just pride ourselves in seeing kind of early signs of lots of things that are happening, know that change is afoot, and we know we need to be on the alert. Like, you know, and, and we're in the midst of a pandemic right now. Um, it, it, I don't blame anyone for not knowing because there are millions of models that probably said it was coming, it wasn't coming, but it's our ability to go, okay, wake up call, we're on the alert. Suggestive right. analytics are fine and we can still take action without 100% certainty. No, we, we must take action without 100% certainty because if we wait for 100% certainty, we'll never act because it won't happen. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, one thing I love the term suggestive analytics, I think it's very powerful. And, you know, one, one thing that is really becoming quite clear during this pandemic is that the models can be very, very good, but models are nearly always by definition within a domain. They're, they're within an expertise silo. And so they're really good at predicting, let's say, you know, number of new cases that, and how that will, change based on social distancing or lockdown or what have you and what impact that will have on ICU capacity you know ICU uh, admissions right they can do that but meanwhile that model has absolutely nothing to say about supply chain breakdowns um, created by the the lockdowns or has nothing to say about um, mental illness that might get exacerbated. It has nothing to say um, about the children who, who are missing a year of school or what have you, right? So it's, you know, every model, models live in their little silos and they don't actually speak to each other. And so they all have what they think are predictive analytics, but which are in fact suggestive analytics, which if, if there were ways to better integrate across models, maybe we'd get to something a little bit more akin to knowing what's happening, but it'll never be perfect. I would love, I mean, there's a whole other conversation to have about all of this because um, we also have a, a thought on um, kind of cross industry, you know, that, that, that you're just as likely to get these moments of aha from some totally different industry. So while you're studying yours, then as you said, with the pandemic, you're studying epidemiology, and then suddenly there's this education piece that becomes very much front and center. Well, um, these are really short interviews, and so there are a couple of stories I would love for you to share, or if you are have moved beyond these stories, um, it's an, the, the topic is, who's done this really well? And some of these companies I had never heard of, um, Barry Waymiller, is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. it? That's so, exactly uh, how you pronounce it. So, yeah was really impressed with the fact that you don't have to be the biggest company in the world to embrace this. Is this a story you'd like to tell or is there one similar to this that, that strikes your fancy more well, today? 
I, I, I'm not sure I can tell it as, as succinctly as I'd like to, but let me try. Uh, so Barry Waymiller is a, is a they, they, you haven't heard of them likely because they make sort of industrial equipment. Uh, <laughs> they're essentially a collection of companies that um, Bob Chapman, the CEO, has acquired over the years and then um, installed a kind of um, very team-based, empowered, flat management structure and culture um, in which uh, the, the employees figure out um, what equipment they need, what problems need to be solved. They're in touch with their industrial customers um, in, in delivering what is usually fairly uh, customized um, manufacturing equipment. Um, so they, they are doing something quite technical, quite specialized, um, for which these frontline folks are, are deeply expert. Um, they've created a culture that is um, remarkably uh, engaged and learning oriented and problem solving oriented where, where everybody believes accurately that, that he or she has a voice, um, has a perfect right to be there and they take care of each other. Um, you know, for example, there, there were many times in the history where there were sessions and, and other things and basically all employees agreed to go um, to let's say 80% time or different amounts based on what had to happen rather than allow uh, anyone uh, to have to endure any uh, layoffs. They think of themselves as a family, but they're a very big and, and you know, mid-sized big uh, thriving uh, corporation with, I think, an astonishing degree of psychological safety. Mm. Well, it was impressive. And there was one last one before we go into sort of the closeout. Um, loved the example of the hardest times for leaders to be leaders. It's really kind of easy to be a leader when everything's theoretical. But when it's real and when lives are on the line and when egos are on the line and, and character really comes out, what's that? There's, I'm sure there's lots of lines about, you know, leadership is really tested when. I love this story and didn't know if you had a short way of explaining the, the, the nuggets from this one. It's a long story, but it's- It is. It is test. another long story. Um, but the, I suppose the short, the short story of it is that most people are unaware of Fukushima Daini. We know about Fukushima Daiichi which, um, so it, after the major tsunami that happened in Japan a number of years ago, um, two nuclear power plants were in the path of the flooding and the danger and the um, exposure to ra radio radioactivity that, that ensued. Um, and in, in one, there was not speaking up and, and, and denial of what was happening and just really um, tragically bad outcomes in terms of uh, human health and lives lost and, and radio, radioactive um, activity uh, released. Um, in the other, through just remarkable um, leadership that uh, created psychological safety for voice, was, was handled in a way that I think is quite um, remarkable and suggestive for the current crisis in that he um, and, and you could say this is countercultural, but the, was completely transparent and asked and open, open about what was going on, what they could do, what they couldn't do, and really asked his, uh, his teams to, um, to organize and try to do something quite remarkable and heroic technically uh, to save 
um, the, the community and the plant, and and they and they pulled it off. And and really, I I I, I, um, I have a section titled "Transparency by Whiteboard." There was a kind of whiteboard in the middle of this chaotic situation where that was constantly updated with what was known and what wasn't known. Um, and people trusted trusted him, trusted each other, um, engaged in remarkable problem solving and they were ingenious and collaborative and 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 pulled off you know something um, something akin to a, a rescue operation where there had been no blueprint right no no off the shelf solution it's a remarkable story and i'm going to give a very brief summary of what i thought was really terrific about the book the fearless organization creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning innovation and growth and then we do do you have time to do the author's dozen their quick back and forth. Sure, I can okay. try. Yeah. So, um, so this is a gorilla. And I think that the reason and I say this because it's sometimes a podcast, we have up on the screen, a, oh. um, a picture of a gorilla. And people always talk about that famous thing where there's a gorilla that runs through the scene and nobody sees it. <laughs> you know, so and yes. then of course, somebody says there's a gorilla. And then the next time you watch the footage, it's completely obvious that there's a gorilla running through the scene. So um, for me, that was a really strong metaphor because it struck me that, you know, you said something earlier in our conversation that I really loved, that um, there's inadvertent leadership mistakes and that, that um, it's a, a training, it's a point of view until it's pointed out that, you know, maybe Amy had something to say, even though she was very quiet. Um, their cultural background, there's all kinds of issues in terms of why. But I think that what the Fearless Organization, the book does really well is it talks about framing the work so, it, mm -hmm. so it, it allows people to, to know what to do, not just understand how to get an A in a course. Um, yeah. Not that anything's wrong with academia. Um, motivating an effort, motivating effort, because we are, as I think you said, you know, pretty well-intentioned as leaders, but how to get others to either think the way we do or do what we want them to do is not a set of muscles that we might've had. I loved your examples of situational humility because, um, we were, some of us trained to be, you know, like I was saying, predictive analytics, we're going to be right, we're going to be the model that works. And right now, being comfortable saying, I'm 80% sure, but we're going to take some action anyway, is a very different set of muscles. Proactive inquiry, this, this skill that I would imagine I would need a whole course on to, you know, we, we do it in customer discovery sometimes in, in mm -hmm. uh, developing things where you think because you told someone what they should believe, that they believed it, but this skill set of really getting to truths and getting beyond, you know, the the surface was really great. And I loved your structures for input that are very easy to understand, probably hard to do. Yeah. So, um, so this was my list of what I loved about the book. What did I miss? And what do you see on the horizon? And then, as I said, we'll do, <laughs> we'll do the author's dozen. <laughs> I, I I think the. Um... Uh, on the horizon and that it's a great list and it all boils down to kind of interpersonal awareness interpersonal skill you know management fundamentally is about getting things done and and getting things done through people which means you've got to really understand people and continually work on creating the conditions where they can do and be their very best and so what's on the horizon is probably a far greater appreciation of, of the wicked problems that lie ahead. And so 
as as diverse as the cases in the book are, they're all basically in operating companies for which there's a business model and you know for which there are customers and and all of that good stuff whereas um right now societally we we face um a handful of really wicked problems problems for which the even what good looks like aren't yet clear and there's no blueprint you know no playbook and how do you sort of gear people up to team up and 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 make progress in around wicked problems is an area of just great concern and interest. Well, that it's so inspiring. It's great to talk to someone whose book you are really a fan of. And uh, this is the way we have a hat tip to James Lipton, who had something called Inside the Actor's Studio. So this is in the author's studio. And this is the author's dozen. And they're just quick. And they don't even have to be about your book. But in general, since we are people who are trying to you know, put our finger up and feel where the wind is going, what's like, let, overhyped these days? Digital. <laughs> what's under <laughs> what's underhyped? Common sense. <laughs> okay. Do you have a favorite quote, either real or imagined? Dare to be naive. And that's a real quote. That's Buckminster Fuller. Dare to be naive. And what about a favorite statistic? <laughs> I can't think of one. Do you have one? Um, I think that it has to do with the one that I learned the other day from someone also in this, that it, only 11% of companies that have subscription businesses lost customers during the pandemic. 89% wow. kept them. And that wow. to me means that yeah. there's, there's a, a, a deep loyalty for, and trust that, that I think, right. so that made me optimistic. Um, right, right, other right. than Andrea Cates and, and Sean Moffat, um, who, who would you want to invite <laughs> like a person you'd want to invite to a change master's last supper, knowing that Last suppers don't always turn out well either, but. Neither. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, uh, Bob Sutton, I think he is perpetually funny, wise, smart, and kind. Oh, that's great. Uh, now you're around 23 year olds a lot. If you were 23 again, knowing what you know now, what, what would you do differently? Be kind, be more kind. I mean, I wasn't unkind. My friends would tell you I'm very kind, but I just, you know, I think I probably didn't have the, the, the compassion for what people, for what everyone's up against something. And uh, I didn't have the, the degree of, of awareness of that um, that I certainly have now. So it's a little crazy to ask if you've ever been blindsided since we're in the midst of yeah. a pandemic, but have you ever been blindsided? Oh, I'm, I can't, countless times. Can't think of one, though. Uh, okay. A company that we might, I don't know, have, that we might have heard of that you admire today. I, I guess the one that comes to mind is Kaiser Permanente. Um, it, because maybe because I'm just so overwhelmed by healthcare thoughts um, these days and the, you know, the, they have for decades been built, built a model that really works, I think, in terms of um, you're a member and, and you get care, uh, right, as opposed to, um, so they're very far away from the fee-for-service uh, model that has gotten us into a lot of trouble. And uh, what about one we haven't heard of? 
any any company that you think is oh sorry that we've never heard of no the first, no, the first, the first one was kaiser oh good okay, okay good oh right right, right i see same yeah, category yeah. is like you know is yeah. there a small off the radar company or or startup or anything that that god that's a tr that's a tricky one um yeah actually here's one august august public okay uh, so they are a they are a consulting company. They are a small consulting company, and they do absolutely brilliant work um, with many companies you have heard of, um, in, in terms of helping people work in a far more agile, honest, um, and 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 um, collaborative way. I think we saw you in a. Didn't you do a video session with them? I did. You know, I did a. Um, like um, a, a it's like a book party. If yeah, you I, and, I saw and, uh, I saw that footage. That and was there was a, really just a, an interview, um, which was long. You know, I mean, it was sort of with because we we you know it was a group of people, with, yeah. with stacks and everything. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I was surprised that anyone would ever see it. Yeah, but, well, I, I loved no. it. Um, yeah. Describe you. Um, how would you want someone? This is not an epitaph, but if right. someone. Describe you in terms of a change maker and impact maker on any level of your any any facet of your life. Playing some small role in freeing people up to bring their full selves to work. Hmm. So any technology or emerging innovation that intrigues you. <laughs> oh, gosh, I, you know, right now I'm so 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 immersed in technology um, that uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so what do you do for fun? I sail. I race sailboats. Uh, that's Wait, not really good. Not something so, I can do very often in the non-summer months around here, but it is a lot of fun in the summer. Well, I'll close this out, although this is a conversation that could have gone on at least twice as long, but I'd like to thank Amy Edmondson. This, I learned a lot. I learned uh, about First of all, we do have to have an offline about this notion of suggestive analytics. We think we're onto something. We'd love to pick your brain about it. And also the, this idea that um, people have deliberate as well as inadvertent behaviors that lead to the kinds of outcomes that they either do or don't want. And the awareness about that, the awareness that all, takes a lot of different people to make a team be really functional and succeed. It's terrific. And I, I love the way that you approached it. I love the way you talked about it. We, as I said, are future-proofing next. And the idea of all of this is exactly what the conversation was, which is to think about the future in a different way so that people feel brave enough to be able to take action even without necessarily a full deck of 100% certainty about what's gonna happen. So this could not have been a more important conversation. And we hope wow. everyone listening to this and watching this will read The Fearless Organization. It's a, it's a really important book for all of us. Any parting words, Amy? You're very kind. I, I truly appreciate it and um, wish, you, wish you and your listeners all the best. Terrific. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the future. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.